Hi, welcome to the Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast, the podcast where we delve into the stories of sports teams and athletes that came close to glory but never won the big one. These teams still deserve to be recognized, even though they failed when it, when it mattered most. And whether they were undone by bad timing, injuries, hubris, or just plain bad luck, they all have a tale worth telling. I am your host, Gen Xer and sports geek Peter Shaw, and I'm being joined remotely by my friend and co-host for the week for this podcast, Bruce Stone, who's a native of Minneapolis. Hi, Peter. Glad to be here with you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for joining me. So Bruce is not a football player. He played the other type of football, soccer, as it's known in the U.S., and he ended up going to St. John's University in, in Minnesota, still a long-suffering Vikings fan, even though he never played football. The St. John's University Johnnies, if you have not heard of them, they are the winningest football program in Division Three history. They were coached by a legend, John Galliardi, from 1953 to 2012. 59 years as a coach. I mean, in medieval times, that was twice the lifespan. That's insane. And under, under him, they won 77% of their games. That's 489 wins, which is actually more than any other college football coach, period. Bear Bryant, Eddie Robinson, forget about it. This guy has them all beat. They won four national championships under him in the in Division Three, and 27 conference crowns against all the uh, Minnesota smaller schools. Sadly, he, he passed away in 2018 at the age of 91. But part of his legacy is that the Galliardi Trophy is given to the best Division III college football player ever since it started in 1993. And fun fact, just for me, I did a little research, and St. John's Rugby Club has won two national championships, National Small College Rugby Organization Championships. So the Johnnies are really killing it in two football codes. So that is pretty, pretty cool to me. So... Talk about Galliardi, that's success and loyalty, and that's really what pervades the land of 10,000 lakes, as you will learn as we discuss the Vikings. So, Bruce, any, anything else to add about my uh, overly verbose intro? No, I appreciate the shout-out to St. John's. A lot of happier uh, memories rooting for those guys than the Vikings, that's for sure, in my 45 years of, of watching the Vikings fail in the big moment. Um, you know, you mentioned the St. John's rugby team. I should add, I actually played one game for the, the JV rugby team. Realized that was not the sport for me. They kind of stuck me out on the wing, and I just sort of stood out there the whole game. Barely knew the rules. Maybe made a tackle. I don't think I held the, had the ball even once. So that's my illustrious rugby career there. That's good. But yeah, let's get into those Vikings. All right. So today we're going to talk about the 1968 to 1978 Minnesota Vikings. Now, that is a really long period of time, but you'll see why, because they had such sustained success. Where does it all start, the backstory? So it's not quite Norse mythology you know, with Odin and Thor, but in 1959, a group of Minneapolis businessmen were awarded a franchise in the AFL, the New American Football League. But they found out they had a shot at the NFL, so they forfeited their AFL franchise, and they were awarded with a new team that uh, was going to begin play in 1961. The Vikings' name was picked to reflect the Scandinavian heritage of the Minnesota region, which has really been forged by the immigrants there who came from that area of the world. And they were presumably, this is just my theory, they were looking for the coldest freaking place in the United States to remind them of their home countries. 
That's my, that's my theory. Now, the reason why they chose purple as their main color is because their first GM was a guy named Burt Rose who went to the University of Washington, and he wanted them to have the same colors as the Huskies, so go dogs. Now, for their first coach, they wanted Bud Grant, and he was coaching in the CFL for the Winnipeg Blue Bombers, who actually had a pretty similar color scheme as the Washington Huskies. Grant said no thanks, stayed north of the border, and they instead hired Norm Van Brocklin, who was a former star quarterback for the Rams and Eagles. This guy was nicknamed the Dutchman, not the cleverest of nicknames. He had recently retired from playing football, would later go on to get elected to the Hall of Fame after a great playing career. And he, he set the record for the most passing yards in a game, which was 554 in 1951, which is a record that actually still stands today, even in the past half the NFL. So he coached the Vikings for six seasons, and they went 29-51-4, and they only had one winning season, which was 1964, and they came in second in the NFL Western Division. They replaced Van Brocklin in 67 with Bud Grant, who they had earlier interviewed. And by this time, uh, they enticed Grant to leave Winnipeg, where he had been very successful. His Winnipeg Blue Bombers won 63% of all the games they played. They won four Grey Cups in Canada, which is their, basically their Super Bowl, and was kind of a big deal. Interestingly enough, on that timeline, three days before Grant was named the new head coach, the Vikings traded away their star quarterback, who everyone has heard of if you're an NFL fan, Fran Tarkenton. Fran had been the starting quarterback for all but seven games since the Vikings started playing at 61. So they jettisoned their star quarterback and bring in a new coach. 67, Grant's team only won three games, but then he would really turn that Viking ship around very quickly. So before we review the Vikings after 67, it's important to remember that even though Bud Grant was a great coach, a lot of the pieces were in place already. It's not like he snapped his fingers and the team instantly became successful. As my son likes to say, it's not sexy to build a football team. And the foundations of this powerhouse really were built up brick by brick years before. So in 61, they brought over defensive end Jim Marshall after one year in Cleveland. He's famous for returning a fumble the wrong way against the 49ers in a game which they actually won in any case. And he actually got a letter from Roy Regals, who was already infamous for running the wrong way in the 1929 Rose Bowl for Cal versus G-Tech, which led to Cal actually losing by a point. And Roy Regals apparently had a good sense of humor and sent it to Jim Marshall and just said, welcome to the club. Three years later, they drafted Carl Eller at the University of Minnesota, homegrown boy, one of their monster defensive ends. A year later, 65, they brought in Gary Larson, not of the far side fame, but he, he came in after one year with the Rams. 60, uh, two years later in 67, they brought in legend defensive tackle, future legend Alan Page, who was drafted out of Notre Dame. 68, they brought in cornerback Bobby Bryant, who was drafted out of South Carolina. So not quite homegrown, but he was on the team forever after that. And then in 68 also, they, they obtained safety Paul Krauss from the Washington football team, formerly known as the Redskins, in a draft day trade. Now, Paul Krauss had had 28 interceptions in his first four years in the NFL, yet the, the Washington football team showed they weren't smart back then like they're not too smart right now and traded him away to the Vikings. Now, those two guys were actually two of the best defensive backs in the NFL at that time and for a while after that. So as most people know, their defensive front line were known as the 
uh, most people don't know, they were known as the Four Norsemen, kind of a play off the Four Horsemen. But they were also given the nickname the Purple People Eaters, named after a 1958 novelty hit by a singer named Sheb Woolley, which um, I guess was... Terrible song. <laughs> terrible, huh? Terrible. Terrible, ridiculous song, but people remember it, and now they remember it even more because of the Vikings' uh, defensive line. But the players, from several articles I read, the players actually didn't like the nickname, but because it stuck, they just kind of went with it. And one more fun fact before we roll out the real story starting the 68 season, the kicker for all these years was Fred Cox, a reliable, if not special, kicker who'd become more famous after retirement, but we'll talk about that later. So, Bruce, you ready to get rolling on the 68 season? Let's do it. I got to say, uh, speaking of, again, more successful franchises than the one we're actually here to talk about, you didn't mention Bud Grant's basketball career. As you know, he was a player on those great Minneapolis Lakers teams before they moved to L.A., won a couple championships. And uh, I know the, uh, the defensive thing is big there, too, because I, the thing I remember about Bud Grant's basketball career is he played in the lowest scoring NBA game of all time. Oh, that's, that is a cool fact. You know, I did not know he was that good a basketball player. So, I mean, when I bring on guest co-hosts, I always learn something. So that's cool. Yeah. I could see, you know, Bud Grant built his football coaching foundations on defense. So I'm sure his basketball approach was quite similar. That is very cool. Starting with 68, we've gone over their defensive core stars. They had a decent offense. Their starting quarterback was a tough as nails quarterback who went to University of California. Joe Cap, So he, he starred for the Golden Bears and then played his first seven seasons of pro football actually north of the border for Calgary and British Columbia. So you, no wonder why Bud Grant kind of liked having a quarterback who uh, he knew could weather the, uh, the cold weather of Canada and Minneapolis. Now Joe Cap, like most quarterbacks of this era, didn't really put up great passing numbers in a run-heavy offense. But uh, the bulk of those carries went to this guy named Bill Brown, who got 800 yards and 11 touchdowns. He had another guy named Quinn Jones in the backfield who ran for over 500 yards. And their best receiver, who seemed to catch most of the balls thrown his way, was Gene Washington, who had 16 yards per catch for that year. The Vikings, this was a real turnaround year, as I mentioned. They won five more games than they did the previous year. So they went eight and six, which is good enough to win the NFC Central by one game and earn them a playoff game. So it was the first playoff game uh, for this franchise. Now, unfortunately, their first playoff game was against the Baltimore Colts in Baltimore. Baltimore that year went 13-1 in the regular season. You had Johnny Unitas. He was hurt for a big chunk of the season, if not most of it. So Earl Morale, a uh, famous backup quarterback for, for the Colts and later on for the uh, Dolphins, uh, led them into the playoffs. The Colts ran up a 21 to nothing lead against the Vikings before the Vikings even got on the board. And then Joe Cap made a little bit more of a game by throwing two second-half touchdowns, but the Colts still won 24 to 14. These Colts would go on to win the NFL championship the next week, 34 nothing over Cleveland, and then go to Super Bowl III where they were upset by Broadway Joe and the Jets 16 to 7 in one of the most famous Super Bowls yet. So they made it to the playoffs just to get knocked out. Um, but you got to start somewhere. So then they move We're on. We're going to come back to that theme, I'm, I'm sure, as we go here. Yes, exactly. <laughs> Sadly, yes. So the 69 season, the Vikings seem to have every, every piece in place, and they seem to go even further. Their opening game was actually against the New York Giants, whose quarterback was former Viking Fran Tarkenton, 
and they lost by one point to their former quarterback. But that seemed to get them just angry because they then won 12 consecutive games. And by the year's end, they had the number one offense and the number one defense in the NFL, no small feat, and won the Central by a very comfortable lead with a 12-2 and record. My man Joe Cap had his best year in the NFL. He threw for 19 touchdowns and made the Pro Bowl. And, you know, the wide receivers and running backs, none of them had really noteworthy stats. They all kind of spread the wealth around, and they were very balanced. Um, so Joe spread the ball around. The defense on the other side of the ball was spectacular that year. They let up 9.5 points per game, including just 12 touchdowns total in 14 games. Opposing running backs didn't really get going. They only averaged 3.2 yards a carry. And the four, uh, their four starting DBs combined for 21 interceptions. So talk about a tough team to run and pass on. In the first round of the playoffs, they hosted the Western champions, LA Rams. And they were favored actually by a touchdown, probably because they beat the Rams by seven points 20 days earlier. Now the Rams actually had their own great defensive line with an equally famous nickname, they were the Fearsome Foursome with Olsen, Greer, Jones, and Lundy. Now, Lundy's the one people don't, don't really remember, so Lamar Lundy was the fourth member of the Fearsome Foursome, and that'll win you some props in any trivia contest with your friends. So this game was played in 11 degrees Fahrenheit weather in Minnesota with a wind chill of minus one. I looked it up in Minneapolis today, the wind chill is minus 18, so that's, that was a balmy day. Balmy, balmy yeah. day by comparison. I, mean, I bet Bud had his short sleeves on. In a baseball hat. No, no earmuffs for that dude. In ski hat. <laughs> and, was, you know, he never allowed, like, heaters on the sidelines either. That was part of the, the uh, intimidation factor. They would just sit out there in their short sleeves. He never allowed blankets or heaters or that sort of stuff on the Viking sideline. Dude, dude was hardcore. I mean, he was just, like, born out of the north, and he was just made, at, made out of tougher stuff than most of us. So they're at home. They're favored by a touchdown. They're playing the, you know, L.A. Rams are used to playing in the sunshine and the warmth. But the Rams actually brought their A game, and they actually led 20-14 to 14 going into the final quarter. But Joe Cap called his own number and ran in a go-ahead touchdown from the two-yard line on a sneak to take the lead to go up 21-20. As the Rams were trying to, uh, to rally, Carl Eller on the D-line sacked quarterback Roman Gabriel, one of my favorite quarterback names of all time. I mean, the end zone for a safety. And the final score was 23-20 to 20 Vikings. So they won their first Skull playoff. Vikes, yeah. All right. Exactly. I'm actually surprised it was such a high-scoring game with those two defensive lines. Exactly. I would have exactly. bet the under in that one, I think. <laughs> Good point. Good point. You expect, like, that would have been a 10-7 game for most people, uh, you know, if they were predicting. So the next game was versus Cleveland. This was a little less rough on the, on the nerves of the Minnesota fans. The Vikings, rather than then get shocked uh, at halftime, losing down by six at home. They got out of the gates quickly, and they were 24 to nothing at the half. So Joe Cap and Dave Osborne, no relation to Super Dave Osborne, each had touchdown runs. And Cap also threw a 75-yard bomb to Gene Washington. And the Browns really had no answer, and the Browns lost 27-7. to So Minnesota became the first modern NFL expansion team to win an NFL championship game. This is before the AFL and NFL merged, right? So this earned them the berth to play in Super Bowl IV, which was the last one to be played before the NFL-AFL merger. And they were pitted against the 12-point underdog Kansas City Chiefs. The Chiefs were 
coached by the very boisterous Hank Stram, who if you watch any NFL films, old footage, he's mic'd up a lot, and he is uh, kind of a, just a funny character to listen to. Their quarterback was Len Dawson, who would later on to go, go host after retirement inside the NFL and HBO for many years. And my favorite thing about Len Dawson is he was famously photographed in the first Super Bowl in the halftime where they played the uh, Green Bay Packers and lost. At halftime of Super Bowl I, there's a photograph of him in the locker room smoking a cigarette and drinking a fresco. Great photo. <laughs> yeah. not, real man is, right there. Yeah. Real, if, you know, real man, you know, Mickey Mantle would have had a six-pack of Bud next to him, but <laughs> a cigarette and a fresco is probably how Ben rolled at least at halftime. He didn't want to have a buzz going into the second half. I mean, these guys were tough, man. These were tough NFL players. The Packers were better that day, and they beat the Chiefs. See. But I mean, maybe maybe if he if he smoked cigarettes and drank a bud, maybe he would have survived uh, the second half against the pack. So these Chiefs were actually very very similar to the Vikings. They were the best defense in the NFL and the second best offense. Their running back was former USC star Mike Garrett, great great running back who would go on to be their athletic director years later. Their wide receiver tandem was really special. They had these guys Otis Taylor and Mike Pitts. So Dawson had good people to throw to, and. Fun fact, this Chiefs team, their second-string quarterback was Tom Flores, who would not play after that year but would go on to coach the L.A. Raiders to the Super Bowl in 1983. And actually, this is the day after he was just inducted into the NFL Hall of Fame. So, I mean, the Pro Football Hall of Fame. So, congrats, Tom Flores. But little-known fun fact, he was the backup quarterback for the Chiefs during that Super Bowl. So, this game was played in Tulane Stadium on a very wet day, and it was the Chiefs' defense that really came to play more than anybody. They intercepted the Minnesota quarterbacks two times, recovered two Minnesota fumbles, and the Chiefs just mixed it up with a lot of formations and quick passes, which really kept the Vikings' defense, who was so, uh, so dominant for the whole year, on their heels. And when the Vikings had the ball, the Chief defenders really penetrated the line regularly. They hit the running backs in the backfield, and no one could really get going. And Joe Cap was running for his life for a good chunk of that game. Future Hall of Fame kicker Jan Stenerud, who is just – he was like a metronome out there and was quite accurate. He kicked all three field goal attempts successfully, including a 48-yarder. And in the second quarter, the Chiefs were up 9-0. So the game got, unfortunately, for Vikings fans, a little further out of reach after the Vikings misplayed the ensuing kickoff and the Chiefs recovered – at the Minnesota 19. Six plays later, Coach Stram, who, as I mentioned, was miked, and you could watch this on YouTube, called for the 65 toss power trap. And then he said right before the play, that might pop wide open. And unfortunately for the Vikings, D, it did pop wide open. And Mike Garrett ran the ball for a touchdown on a perfectly executed play. So at halftime, the Chiefs led 16 to nothing and were really in the driver's seat. Now, third quarter got a little tighter. Joe Cap was a never-say-die guy. He was able to lead the Vikings on a 69-yard drive, which culminated in Super Dave Osborne getting a touchdown run, and they were only down 16-7, which actually was the final score of the previous Super Bowl. So was that, was that going to be our final score here? The answer was no. The Vikings did have a lifeline, but they couldn't really stay, stay with it for too much longer. On the next possession, KC was driving at the Minnesota 45. And Dawson hit really their fast wide receiver, Otis Taylor, on a quick out on the right sideline. He broke one tackle and started bursting down the sidelines. And then he broke one more tackle and went in for the touchdown. So he turned a short pass 
into basically the backbreaker. Joe Cap still was throwing the ball desperately and running for his life as they were down by 16, but he threw two fourth quarter interceptions and was getting pummeled constantly. So unfortunately for the Vikings, the final score was Kansas City 23, Minnesota 7. And the AFL had somehow supplied the Super Bowl champion for the second straight year. Yeah, this is this is coming back to another theme here of, of the Vikings losing when they should have won when they're the favorite team. And uh, I was still two years away from being born in 69, but my father, my uncles, this is the team that in their in their minds should have been the one that 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 won it. This team uh, was clearly the best in the NFL. We talked about the defense. Yeah, this is one of the ones that really hurts. There are some others in here where we'll uh, talk about some different circumstances, but this is a, an example of the Vikings uh, being favored and just doing a complete no show, which we'll talk about against the the Falcons and the Giants and some other some other ones that going coming up. Yeah, coming yeah, up too. yeah. The, it's it's really an epic journey of pain. Sad to say. And now for a short break. This podcast is brought to you by Cigar City Brewing. At Cigar City Brewing, we make the beer we like to drink and toast those who choose to drink with us. Whether it's the full flavor of High Lie IPA or the lighter-bodied High Low IPA, Cigar City Brewing has you covered for any occasion that calls for handcrafted beer. Find out more at CigarCityBrewing.com. Cigar City Brewing, Tampa, Florida. Please enjoy responsibly. Now back to the podcast. So moving on to the 70 season, the NFL and AFL merged. So the Vikings were now part of the NFC where they still are today. The Vikings only made one major change in their roster. Joe Kapp, who came off his best NFL year and his only Pro Bowl appearance, became a free agent and they opted not to sign him. So no one actually wanted him until October when he was signed by the lowly Boston Patriots, who are now the New England Patriots. Now, sadly for him, he played down to the level of that team. He only had a 2-12 and record, which was the worst in the league. And that was also his last year in the NFL because the Patriots drafted Jim Plunkett out of Stanford the following year. But we'll talk about Cap in our recap, so to speak. I made it funny. All right, so who was their quarterback? <laughs> Thank you for the uh, charity laugh, Bruce. Their quarterback was journeyman Gary Quozo, if I'm pronouncing that right. So he became their starter. I, 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 when I heard that, I was like, Gary who? He really, he sounds like he's, he's a capo for the Minneapolis mob, like Gary the Chin Quozo. Um, that's probably the Minneapolis mob is more Norwegian than Italian, <laughs> honestly. Actually, you're right. It's, yes, Sven Gudlander is the guy you don't want to with because <laughs> you'll end up in a wood chipper like in Fargo. Yeah, so I don't hope no one is uh, culturally offended by my insensitivity. I've just watched Goodfellas way too many times. And I lived in a very Italian section of the Bronx for four years. So there you have it. So aside from that change of quarterback, Bud Grant really didn't mess with a good thing. So he really had almost the exact same roster going in. The draft didn't really yield any stars, but they still had high hopes in a new league, in a new, a new decade. In week one, they squared off against the Chiefs in Minneapolis, and they got instant revenge, beating the Super Bowl champions 27-10. to 10. But the rest of the year went the same as the previous year. They went 12-2. and two. They won their division. And their only two losses were by three at Green Bay, which was no easy place to go play. And then they lost by 10 at Shea Stadium versus the Jets, where Joe Namath was still at the peak of his powers. Their offense was still solid. They scored the third most points in the NFL. And I'm sure it was helped by the field position because their defense – 
remained dominant. The defense itself got five touchdowns on interceptions and fumble returns. Their running backs were pretty much by committee. They still had Super Dave Osborne, who got 600 yards and five TDs. Clint Jones, who sounds like a, you know a Saturday afternoon serial cowboy actor, he got nine rushing touchdowns from short yardage. Pozo put up mediocre numbers, seven touchdowns and 10 interceptions, and only 1,700 yards passing in 12 games. But it tells you how good the defensive was. He was 10-2 and two as a starter, only throwing seven touchdowns. That tells you what good defense and, um, and decent running backs will give you. That, all i got to say is that's how good their defense was. Now, Gene Washington was their go-to receiver. It seemed like he caught almost every pass from Quozo, 702 yards and four TDs in a very run-heavy offense. Now, this D intercepted the ball 28 times and recovered 25 fumbles. Now, Alan Page recovered seven fumbles by himself, and this team let up 10 touchdowns all year. Now, and they let, um, on top of that, they let opposing teams only score 10 points and gain 128 yards per game to rank number one in this new merged NFL. So it's really not shocking that they did as well as the previous year. Sacks were not an official statistic at this time, but we don't know how many quarterbacks the Purple People Eaters actually ate that year. Um, but I'm sure some people have scoured the footage, and I'm sure it was um, a really super high number. So e even the special teams was good in helpless throwing. They had three block kick returns for touchdowns, including two by little-known Pitt alumnus cornerback Ed Sharrockman. I just felt like I threw that in. Anyone went to Pitt, I I'll just throw in. They interesting interestingly let up three kickoff return touchdowns and one punt return touchdown, so it was like feast or famine for their special teams. So we'll just call it a, a break-even year on special teams. NFL was wild back then, man. These quarterbacks throwing 15 touchdowns and 15 interceptions in a season. You'd be, you know, benched in the third game these days oh, if you threw that many picks. Unbelievable. Exactly. And these guys, the guys like that were making the Pro Bowl. And, you know, even – one thing, just to throw in Joe Namath real quick, who doesn't really come back in the story at all. If you look at Joe Namath's stats, now he, he's in the Hall of Fame. He won Super Bowl three. If you look, he was the first guy to throw for 4,000 yards in NFL history. If you look at his career stats, they are pedestrian. Yeah. They're not great. Um, you need one big Super Bowl win, and that's what he did. He kind of rode that into the Hall of Fame, I think, and years of endorsements and whatever else, you know, special appearances on the Brady Bunch. So let me get off my Joe Willie Namath kick. Um, but you're right. The stats then versus now offensively um, were just uh, just like night and day. So they, the Vikings once again had the best record in the NFC and actually had the best record in the NFL. And they, they were, um, as I mentioned, they, they won 12 games. And they hosted the 10-3-1 49ers in the first round of the playoffs. Once again, it was Minnesota in December. Um, and they were 12 years away from the warmer, warmer yet uglier Metrodome being completed. So the temperature at kickoff in sunny Metropolitan Stadium was 10 degrees Fahrenheit with a wind chill of minus five. So I'm sure Bud Grant was loving that. He probably had them eating like bark on the sideline <laughs> eat the meal or something like that. Uh, I mean, he, he just, uh, you know, was all in on the, the hard man from the North Credo. One interesting fun fact, the best receiver on both teams was actually named Gene Washington. So, uh, coincidence? I don't know. So, the Vikings were hosting the Niners. Quozo 
had the Vikings driving deep into 49ers territory, but overthrew his receiver and was intercepted. Thankfully for the Norsemen, the Niners fumbled their second offensive play at their own 22. Paul Krause, defensive back stud, picked it up, returned it for a touchdown. So the Vikings were up 7-0 at the end of the first quarter. The Niners had a really solid quarterback, John Brody. He was the league's leading passer, actually, that year. And he kept his cool in the Arctic uh, temperatures and dropped back and was just passing on almost every play. So he marched the team down the field and um, with a couple short passes and then unloaded a long bomb to his Gene Washington, who caught it in double coverage inside the 20. Um, but as he was trying to uh, make a few extra yards, he got inside the 10 and he fumbled. And on, on this hard ground, which probably could not have been uh, any softer than concrete, the ball squirted into the end zone where the Vikings fell on it for a touchback. So, so far, the ball is really bouncing their way, literally and figuratively. So the Vikings really didn't get much going. They punted, and their, their special teams failed them, as it did during the regular season. The Niners returned the ball 30 yards to the Viking 23. A few days later, Brody threw a beautiful pass to Dick Witcher, one of their best possession receivers for a touchdown. And you know how I know it was beautiful? Because I watched the highlights on YouTube over and over to get a real appreciation of this game. Now, Fred Cox lined up for a 33-yard field goal to answer, but he missed it. So the Niners then came right down the field and kicked a field goal on the, of their own. So they had been down 7-0 on the road, and now they're up 10-7. Unfortunately, the Vikings couldn't hold on to the ball much either. So they fumbled, and the Niners lined up for another field goal, which thankfully was blocked by Carl Eller, who just seemed to be doing everything for the team at this point. Um, so halftime, it was Niners 10, Vikings 7. Now the Vikings offense at halftime had not scored a single point, and they had fumbled three times. So they were very, very lucky to be down only by a field goal. In the second half, the Vikings D started to really come alive and keep up the pressure. And the Niners' D, unfortunately for the Vikings, also came to play, even though they weren't as highly regarded. And they were really chasing Gary Quozo all over the field. And the third quarter ended, and Gary Quozo was a sparkling four for 18 passing at that point, which is not good in anyone's book, even in the old NFL. I don't even think Walter Camp would have ex accepted such pathetic passing stats. You're passing too much. Should have kept running. Should have exactly. kept it on the ground, Peter. In the fourth quarter, Brody got the O moving, but had another fumble recovered by Paul Krause, who also seemed to be everywhere. And the Vikings finally started to move the ball, but Quozo got sacked and moved them out of an easy field goal range. So they still lined up, and Fred Cox's American style dead on toe fell short on the 43-yard attempt. So it was still 10-7 Niners. And the Vikings got pinned back at their one-yard line by an excellent punt, but they played it safe not choosing to pass, as obviously they couldn't, and they ended up punting it out of their own end zone after running a few times up the gut. Unfortunately, the punt was short and got returned to the Vikings 13. So the special teams really let them down again and again. Uh, the Niners were going to capitalize on this. They were going to play it smart, and they ran a few times up the gut, and finally quarterback John Brody, who was um, happy to call his own number, scored on a sneak to take a 17-7 to lead with over three minutes left. Vikings did not, did not give up. Obviously, at Bud Grant as their coach, they were never going to give up. So Quozo threw a long pass to Gene Washington from 24 yards out to score a touchdown, 
but unfortunately that was with one second left in the game. And it made the final scoreline a little more flattering, 17 to 14. But when the final whistle went and they shot that gun in the air, it was another disappointing Viking loss to another great year. Now, these Niners would go on to lose the next week to the Cowboys, and the Cowboys would go on to lose to the Colts in the, in the next Super Bowl, 13 to 10 on a last second field goal. And Vikings probably just went ice fishing and missed all that drama. That was one of the least exciting Super Bowls. But it was the only Super Bowl where a member of the losing team was the MVP, Chuck Howley, linebacker, Dallas Cowboys. That's another fun fact for anyone's trivia toolbox. On to the 71 season. For no real reason, the Vikings didn't change anything in their roster. And they went in with Quozo as their starting quarterback again. That I can't understand. Because he seemed like the one rate-limiting step when it came to their Super Bowl chances. So the offense, shockingly or not shockingly, got worse. Special teams, thankfully, got better. They didn't let up a return for a touchdown. And the Vikings defense was once again smothering and just, just uh, they were monsters. Just like sausage gravy on a biscuit, they covered everybody and just smothered them. They had a really, unfortunately, the Vikes had a poor rushing attack, but they were at least well-balanced. And they got, you know, they were spread evenly amongst four or five guys like Super Dave and Clint Jones. Um, but their defense, once again, was the best in the NFL. They let up 9.9 points per game, had three shutouts, and only let one team score more than 20 points. Alan Page continued his just amazing form, and he became the first defensive player ever to be named the NFL MVP. So he, he recovered three fumbles, scored two safeties himself. And think about it, the year before he recovered seven fumbles, so I don't know why he didn't win it the year before, but that's another question. His teammates Carl Eller, Jim Marshall, and Paul Krause, super safety, all joined, joined him as all pros that year. Now it seems kind of boring to say this, but they went 11-3, and three and they won the division again. And they hosted Super Bowl uh, runner-up from the previous year, Dallas, in the first round in Minnesota. Dallas had a, was 11-3 and three as well. And they shared the best record in the NFL with the Vikings. The, Vi the Cowboys, as opposed to the Vikings, had the best offense in the league that year. They were led by Navy alum Roger Dodger Staubach, who won all 10 of his starts that year. And they also had three future Hall of Fame weapons at his disposal. He had Bullet Bob Hayes, the man who made the screen pass the ultimate weapon, an aging Lance Bambi Allworth, who had his glory years with the Chargers, but still was pretty solid. And the always ornery Iron Mike Ditka. Ditka. Uh, Ditka. You got to say it that way. Ditka. And the, the running backs were Dwayne Thomas, who had 11 rushing touchdowns that year. And the L product, Calvin Hill, who was a rookie of the year in 69 and scored 11 touchdowns this year as well. And he ended up going to the Pro Bowl four times, actually, during his career. Fun fact about him is that he, he went on to have a son named Grant who went on to be a pretty good basketball player at Duke and then in the NBA. Now, their fullback was this real tough guy named Walt Garrison who made the Pro Bowl, but later became more famous, dare I say, for becoming the long-term, long-time spokesman for Skull Smokeless Tobacco, which used to be advertised on TV. And he would be sitting there on a horse on the range, and he would say, just a pinch between my cheek and gum gives me full tobacco flavor with every chew. So you see, to advertising works, because that was probably 40 years ago. 
So, Peter, you did a great Texas accent there. I haven't heard you break you. out the, uh, the Fargo or the Minnesota accent yet. Oh, yeah. Got to gotta start off. Get that going. Yeah. It's hot. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not as good at that one. But we are. We are. Them Vikings. The defense had a great nickname, the Doomsday Defense. And they were seventh in the league with points allowed. And they let up the third least yardage for the year. They had their own superstars. They had Mel Renfro, D.D. Lewis, Super Bowl MVP Chuck Howley, who I mentioned previously is the only winner of the Super Bowl MVP on a losing team. So the Vikings were a little less settled at quarterback by the end of the season. Uh, Bud Grant actually selected their third string quarterback to start, and he was also their full-time punter named Bob Lee. Now, Lee had a three-and-one record as a starter, so maybe Grant was on to something, or maybe any Trump could go three-and-one as a starter if the Purple People Eaters were getting you the ball at the other team's 20-yard line. So I honestly just don't know. But we would soon find out how Bob Lee would do against the Doomsday defense. This was once again in Minnesota. At the kickoff, it was a balmy 22 degrees, 12 with wind chill, which, you know, that's, that's shorts and shorts weather if you're from Minneapolis. But maybe the Vikings defense would heat it up a little bit. Unfortunately, the Vikings, though, did very little. Their D was still awesome. They held Dallas to only 10 first downs for the whole game in 130 years. 183 yards of total offense. Now, both teams exchanged field goals before Dallas kicker Mike Clark hit a 44-yarder to take a 6-3 lead into halftime. Just before halftime, Fred Cox tried the tying field goal, but... Good grief. I know. Get the special teams and offense right, bud. My God. I know. Exactly. Three straight years of going up 10 Dallas points a game. What are we doing? I know. Exactly. Uh, the, the crazy thing is, if, you ever, if you're ever really into scouring... The, the data, the kickers up to the 90s, late 90s, and early 2000s were so inaccurate. No matter what you remember, these guys were like 60 to 70%. The guys now are like 95% accurate. Sure. They'll get cut if they miss two field goals in a game. But like, these guys like Fred Cox and Ludito Groza and Don Cockroft on the Browns, these guys would stay on the team for 15 years, even though they yep. don't get half yep. the field goals. The expectations, I guess, were low for special teams. 6-3 at the half, despite the defense playing very well. So Dallas was up. Sounds pretty familiar from the previous years. But Bob Lee was not the answer to how do we get back in the second half. So he threw two interceptions for the game. Dwayne Thomas ran for a touchdown. Stallback threw for a touchdown to Bullet Bob Hayes in the second half. And they were up 20-3 to on the road in Minnesota in the fourth quarter. The offense couldn't score, so Alan Page took it into his own hands. By mean, he actually took Roger Dodger into his own hands and threw him down in the Dallas end zone for a safety to cut the lead to 20-5. to Unfortunately, it takes a lot of safeties to come back from a 17-point deficit, and not even Alan Page could get that many safeties in a game. If anybody could, he could. But I can't, <laughs> I can't just... imagine what this defense thought of these offense and kickers and, and everything else. They, were, uh, I, they must have hated them. Yeah, you know, why, I'm sure they did not hang out in the offseason at all. The defensive guys all probably went fishing and hunting, and they just did not invite anyone in the offense. Maybe Fred Cox because he was probably a good time, but nobody else. So, so they brought Gary Quozo back in, and uh, he did his best, but he threw two interceptions of his own. I guess Bob Lee didn't feel so bad for himself. Unfortunately, if you turn the ball over five times and the other team doesn't turn it over at all, you're probably going to lose. 
Now, Colozo did hit Stu Voigt for a late touchdown, but it wasn't enough. And Dallas went on the road in Minnesota 20-12 to to set the stage for another cold, long, sad Minnesota winter. Cowboys would win the NFC Championship the next week over John Brody's Niners, 14-3, with a, an amazing defensive performance and a grinding running attack. And then they would go on to beat the Dolphins 24-3 in the Super Bowl with the same game plan. They had 252 total rushing yards against, <coughs> excuse me, against the Dolphins to hoist their first Lombardi trophy. 72, on to 72. The Vikings front office finally decided they need a better offense. And if they were going to win the Super Bowl, they at least had to get past the first round of the playoffs. So what they did was they traded Quozo. I don't know anyone would actually accept Quozo. I hope he's not listening to this podcast and is, you know, going to get mad at me. But they traded him to the St. Louis football Cardinals for deep threat wide receiver John Gilliam, which was a freaking steal. And you will see why when I talk about John Gilliam's run with the Vikings. But they traded three players and two draft picks, which was the bigger news story at the time, to bring back mobile quarterback Fran Tarkenton back from the Giants. Gilliam would go on to have a super year, make his first Pro Bowl. Fran threw him the ball as much as he could. Even though it was pass happy for the Vikings, that was only 47 catches. But it was for 1,035 yards and seven touchdowns, which is 22 yards per catch. So Gilliam made his catches count. So Fran had a respectable year in the purple uniform his first year back, 18 touchdowns, 13 interceptions, 2,600 passing yards. Once again, they had the multi-headed monster. Oscar Reed, the running back, got the lion's share, or should I say Viking share of the the carries that year, and he was effective leading the team with 639 yards. The rest of the running black platoon was the usual cast of characters. But they did add Heisman Trophy finalist Ed Marinaro out of Cornell University. Now, Marinaro, while he was in college, set over 16 NCAA records and was the first running back in NCAA history to run for 4,000 yards in his career, leading the nation in rushing in 1971. He was a runner-up to Pat Sullivan of Auburn for the Heisman Trophy. So they hoped that Ed Marinaro would add some scoring punch to their ground game. Now, the offense took some steps forward and finished 12th in points scored versus 18th the previous year. But the, and the defense, despite Page and Krause making the Pro Bowl, actually the defense took a few steps back when they were only 11th in points allowed, letting up 18 points a game. I guess you can only let up nine points a game for so many years before your defense gets a little tired. So they did return two, touch for, uh, two interceptions for touchdowns and two fumbles, and Paul Krause was still bringing his A game at 30 years old. And he, he intercepted a ball and brought it back and also brought a fumble back. So the defense was still doing their best. But when the dust settled on this year, an improved offense couldn't compensate for a weaker defensive effort overall. The Vikings only went 7-7, seven and seven, failing to make the playoffs for the first time since Grant's first season in 67. Was this going to be the beginning of the end or just the end of the Vikings team's successful run? We will find out when we move on to the 73 season. Plenty of pain yet to come. Plenty of, plenty of exactly. devastating losses coming it's, up here. Like the, like the Black Knight in Monty Python's Holy Grail, there's still three four limbs <laughs> to be cut off here. That's it for part one of the Minnesota Vikings, 1968 to 1978. This is one of three. 
We hope you've enjoyed it so far and tune in soon for part two. The Close But No Cigar Sports Podcast is a Pug and Monkey production. I wish to thank Lobo and his band Checky Brown for letting us use their song Hippie Boy as our theme song. Hit it, boys.